0: And as you are, if you would, join me with one more prayer as we come to hear from God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to always come before you and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. For what is man that you are mindful of him? And what can man do apart from your spirit accompanying him? But by faith, we come to your word and trust that your spirit will act with authority and effectiveness. And we pray that he would even now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it was the bottom of the 12th inning. Okay, bottom of the 12th inning, the score is tied 4-4. Four to four. Manny Ramirez is on first. Okay. David Ortiz is approaching the plate. Raise your hand if you know what game I'm talking about. A few of us. The 2004 AL Championship game. Boston versus the Yankees. Okay, Boston's down three games to zero. A hole that no team has ever climbed out of in all of Major League Baseball. The odds are as against them as it can get. And it is the final inning of game four. If they lose, it's over. The pitch comes, Ortiz swings, and the ball launches over the right field wall, sparking not just their victory then, but the greatest comeback in baseball history. As the Red Sox then go on to not just win the championship, but the World Series itself. What does that have to do with my sermon? Well, apart from... Uh, apart from the fact that I'm in New England and I figure I have to give a plug to the New Englanders, it teaches us a lesson. For both teams, the way they began was important. But a far greater concern was how they finished. And it is for us the same. How we begin is important. But our greater concern is how we finish. And as we turn now in our fifth study in the book of Galatians, we find a similar warning, a similar concern from the Apostle Paul to these churches he planted a few years ago in Galatia. He knows how they began. They began knowing that justification, their only hope was by faith alone. But now he writes to them with the concern that they might they might turn away from that. And he wants them instead to continue to finish with the same hope that their justification will continue to be and will finish by faith alone. And my prayer is that as we consider Paul's arguments, for this, he basically gives three defenses for this. Why justification both begins and finishes by faith. And as we consider these three defenses, my prayer is that we too would be a people marked by faith. Not just in how we begin, but also in how we finish. So let's begin. If you will join me. Well, I'll read, but follow along with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, which can be found on page 1812, if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, page 1812. As a word of warning, you'll see some of Paul's personality come out as he's a bit exasperated. So let's begin. Verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness understanding that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us. In order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the spirit. So how does Paul defend that it will be by faith that they not only begin, but by faith that they finish? Well, he tells the Galatians first, look to your conversion. Your conversion point number one. Now, as you heard, Paul's voice gets a bit animated in these verses. I I tried to characterize it as best I could. He is beside himself. This is really one of the first times that Paul is kind of turning back now to the situation going on in Galatia. If you remember back in chapter one, that's when he first did it. Verse six, he says, I am astonished that you would so quickly turn away from him who called you by the grace of Christ to another gospel. Not that there is one. Then he kind of takes this pause and he goes through his defense of the gospel and he returns now in verse 1 saying not just that he's astonished, but he says, you fools, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's his only explanation that he can give that would possibly justify or make sense of the fact that anyone would give up salvation by faith alone. And turn instead to the condemnation of the law. To exchange the truth to run after a lie. And so Paul was there when, he, when they received the gospel. He knew what it was like when they had received it. In fact, he was the very one who brought it to them. He portrayed Christ as crucified to them, as he says. Which is just his way of saying he could not have made the gospel clearer. It was as though they were there. It was made as known as possible that Christ was crucified for them. They know the cross of Christ. They know his crucifixion. They know its sufficiency. Or at least Paul says they did. He's trying to wake them up from their folly to keep them from going astray. So he comes to them, not just with harsh words, but then he turns in verse two to a series of questions, questions that will demonstrate just how foolish it is for them to go astray. So look down to verse two. Paul says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. So here's his big question. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law? Or by what? By believing what you heard. See, for Paul to receive the Spirit was the same as conversion, as regeneration. It was to become a Christian. Ephesians 1, 13, Paul says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This was the promise of the new covenant that God would would pour out his spirit on all flesh, on all the nations of those who would hear and believe the gospel. And since Paul was the one who first preached to them the gospel, they could not have received it by any other means but by faith. For Paul refused to preach anything but Christ and him crucified, as he just said he portrayed to them. He didn't even preach to them the law so that surely they could not have, been, they could not have received it by the law. So then the answer is obvious. They received the Spirit. They were converted by faith, by believing what they heard. But since they believe that, Paul then turns in verse 3 and says, Then are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? By your own deeds? Paul says, When you put your faith in Christ for salvation... You are at that moment justified, at that moment declared righteous. And yet more than that, he sends his spirit to indwell you. This is kind of what Paul was saying in our passage last week, that Christ lives in him. The spirit dwells in him, and that spirit continues to make you more righteous, as you've already been declared. It's the word sanctification. He is sanctifying you, making you more like Jesus So you are both declared righteous before God and then increasingly made more righteous by the work of his spirit. So then it would be foolish to think that having been justified by faith. It would now be their responsibility to be sanctified by works. But then is this not the temptation of so many of us this morning? How many of us focus our attention on Philippians 2.12? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Working and and toiling and laboring to, to work out our salvation all the while neglecting the very next verse. For it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. We do work, yes, but we work not as a means of gaining or, for that matter, even maintaining our righteousness. We work as those who have been declared righteous, and his spirit is increasingly making us so. And the glorious promise for Christians this morning is that he who began this good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 So then the underlying truth here is that the Christian life both starts and finishes by faith. And Paul says any other path is a road to destruction. Is a road to destruction. Which is why he turns in verse 4 to a, a word of warning saying that if they continue on this path, everything... Even the suffering they've endured for being a Christian. It would all be for nothing. It would all be in vain. For if they turn from faith now, they simply prove they were never of faith to begin with. Had never been declared righteous. And so he closes with a question in verse 5, much like his first question in verse 2. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you? Because you observe the law. Or because you believe what you heard. God not only gave them the spirit by faith. But the spirit then continued to work among them by faith. Validating the truthfulness of the gospel. And its divine origins. Accompanying it with miracles. And yet Paul reminds them that even that came by faith. So then faith begins. Faith completes and faith carries to completion. Faith begins, faith completes, and faith carries to completion. Which is the reason Paul is so shocked, so beside himself that these Galatians could know this truth, have even believed this truth, have testified to the confidence that this was truth, and yet so quickly entertain turning now to their own good works. As though they had in themselves the ability to complete what the death of Jesus and the work of his spirit apparently couldn't. I assume you felt that same sense of astonishment before. Lighter versions maybe in parenting or in your your friends or what decisions you see them making with their lives. I remember a very dear friend of mine, one that I grew up with when he uh, was arrested and was court ordered to f- spend six months in rehabilitation for alcohol abuse i remember being on the phone with him regularly and watching as he's there and begins the detox process and i start seeing his life transform his his demeanor his speech the way the things he thought about and gave his attention to his desires for the future all of it his entire life was changing and at the core of it for him was not only that he now understood he needed help but he was getting it after years of thinking he had control over the problem. The problem proved it had control over him, but now he was being delivered from it by the help of others outside of himself. But it wasn't, but a few weeks after he left that I knew this feeling of Paul that I wanted to say, would you be so foolish for it was just three weeks before he He thought in himself the ability to overcome this on his own again, thinking, I can master this. I am strong enough. I can do this as though he had done it in the first place, all on his own. And within a few weeks, he had returned to his old habits, his old friends and his old addictions. Our emotions stir at a story like this. Emotions of not just sorrow, but even frustration or anger. And yet, is this not a mirror of the very way we depend upon God so often? Having once felt the need to look outside of ourselves for salvation, suddenly turning inward for the continuance of our righteousness, depending now on ourselves. Much like these Galatian churches in our text this morning, having been converted by faith, would we now think ourselves able to complete the task that only he began? I wonder what you're tempted to depend on for your righteous standing before God. What do you get tempted to depend on other than faith? Maybe it's your good character. Or the godliness of your children. Or the way you parent them. Maybe it's your Bible reading plan or the friends that you spend time with, or simply the ability to say, I'm better than the next person. We cannot let our confidence rest in our being raised in a Christian home, or by Christian parents, or by going to a Christian school, or by doing Christian activities, or even by attending a Christian church each week, all of which are good, right, and godly things. In fact, they're part of the way the Spirit is at work in you. But they are never to be a substitute for our dependence for righteousness. Isaiah 64 6 says all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. But then some of you know that all too well. You're on the opposite side of the spectrum where you you feel entirely undeserving. You know yourself to be imperfect and are aware of every error and failure and broken image. But I gently remind you the same promise is comforting for you. For his righteousness never depended on your perfection in the first place. It was faith in his righteousness and it is his righteousness that never fails. So then what does this mean for you tomorrow? What does this truth mean for you when you wake up in the morning? Well, it means that if you have failed, let's say you fail to have your quiet time tomorrow morning. Or you find yourself engaged again in that sin that you've been trying to overcome. Friends, you don't despair. This promise means you have no reason for despairing. For it, instead you respond in repentance and in rejoicing. You respond by turning away from that sin. You acknowledge that sin. You confess that sin, turn away from it, having no desire to continue in it. And then you rejoice knowing that sin has been utterly and completely paid for and is in no way the source of your righteousness. But it is the very righteousness of Christ that you depend on. And you go on rejoicing. Or if you do have that quiet time, and you do find yourself having victory over that sin. This also means for you that you don't puff up in pride. For you know it is not you who did this in the first place, but it is the Spirit's work in you. It is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So you give God the glory and you respond by praising him for his good work in you. And then you go on rejoicing as well. That God would allow you, enable you to give your life to his Glory and honor. But then we should not try to live this way in isolation. God instituted the church, like this congregation, this church instituted to make your sanctification a community project. It is a group project, like one of those group gardens, except this is a sanctification garden. This is your your life being transformed, not on your own, but through the the aid and and fellowship of other saints. But to do this, we have to be transparent and honest. We have to be vulnerable, opening up our lives to each other. Because what does it gain you? If you you fool everyone in this church, wearing a mask, knowing that God sees a heart, Instead, take the mask off, open up your life so that you, like these Galatian churches, can be corrected in times of correction and can be pointed to the cross, to the crucifixion portrayed, reminded of when the when Jesus's crucifixion was portrayed before your eyes, just as Paul is doing here for these churches. We need to expose our weaknesses so that we can have the spirit working in us through the instrument of his church. For we will then see the crucifixion that was not only sufficient at our justification, but continues to be sufficient for our sanctification as we journey this Christian pilgrims to the end. So how do we know faith is the means of righteousness? Both from the start to the finish. Well, Paul says, first, consider your conversion. But then he also presents a second defense, one more objective than their personal experience. So we want to consider number two, Abraham's credit. Abraham's credit. Verse six. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness understanding that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, if you remember Abraham and his wife, Sarah, if you remember the context in which this promise, in which he believed, it was When they were both old in age, like a hundred, close to it, Romans 4 says. Nearing a hundred and both without children, and yet God had promised them what? Not just a child, but a child through whom would come offspring outnumbering the sand of the seashores and the stars in the sky. So great was to be his offspring. And an offspring that would not just outnumber that, but would then prove to be a blessing. Blessing. To the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And how did century old Abraham respond? He believed. That's what Paul says, quoting here and from Genesis fifteen six Abraham believed God. He heard God's promise and he believed. And as a result, God credited to Abraham righteousness, accounted to Abraham righteousness. Right standing. Romans 4.21 explains that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that, his belief in what God had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because he put his faith in the promises of God. God credited him righteousness. A faith that came entirely apart from the law. Certainly apart from circumcision, because neither had even stepped onto the scene. So just as it was for the Galatians, so too it was for Paul. Of course it couldn't have been by the law. Neither existed yet. It was only by faith. And this was the gospel of justification that Paul says in verse 8 was announced by the scriptures beforehand. Quoting Genesis 12 and 18, chapter 12 and chapter 18, the blessing of justification given to Abraham by faith and through Abraham to all the nations. This was the blessing that was to go through him, even to the Gentiles. Justification. And what was this promise that Abraham looked forward to? It was the same promise that Christians today look back to having been fulfilled. The promise that while our deeds are, as we said, as filthy rags, and God does require of us perfection, a standard none of us is able to meet on our own, that God sent forth his son to live this righteous life required of us. And when he died on the cross, he not only bore the wrath of God that had been credited to us, that had been our merit, had been our deserving, it was placed upon him. For those who would trust in him, turn from sin and trust in him alone. But more than that, three days later, he rose from the dead. And then promised, offered that righteousness that he had lived, that righteous life, offers it to anyone who would receive it by faith. A righteousness credited to them. Accounted to them. Taking their bankrupt account and replacing it with an account overflowing with the righteousness of Christ. So by faith, like Abraham, we can be credited righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. And it's not that our lives suddenly become perfectly righteous in that moment. It's not that our lives immediately transform outwardly. But it is our, ca- our account before God that has been utterly and completely turned over. Before God, we are counted righteous in spite of our many sins. And I think the most... The best illustration I've heard of this was actually a good friend of mine's testimony. A very close friend who lived a very criminal life of drugs, gangs, violence, weapons, to the point that he was faced with a decision from the judge. 20 years in prison or complete a men's correctional program. So wise as he was at that time, he chose the latter. And while he's at this correctional program, my friend, still in his sin and anger and hatred toward God, beats the man in charge, leaves him there, and walks right out of the correctional program. And as he's walking down the road, it overcomes him how far his sin had taken him. The depths of his depravity became so great to him that it was a burden he could not bear. And he cried out to the Lord and said, If you will save me, I will give my life to you. Somehow he heard the gospel and was converted. He returned to that correctional program and finished it. And as he went back to the court for their assessment, he went before the clerk. And the clerk told him there was no account on the record for him, it was gone. Not even his name was in their record book. It had entirely disappeared. Decade of criminal activity, of serious crime, and not a one was accounted to him. It was as though none of it had happened. It didn't change the fact that my friend was guilty for every one of those crimes. That happened. That did occur, and he would have been guilty for it. But legally, before the court, it was as though he was accredited righteous without sin and without guilt. Only it paled in comparison to the joy he knew of the greater declaration of righteousness from God because of Christ. One that was not a glitch in the system. One that could not have an undo button or find a record that was hidden in a stash over here. One that was perfectly and completely given to him as a righteousness of the perfect son of God which cannot be undone. That was a righteousness accredited to him by faith. And it's not only his to be received by faith. This is what is offered to each one of us in here this morning. That is why the devil, knowing our guilt, can look upon us and no longer find justifiable cause to accuse us. For what is he to say? The supreme judge of all the universe has already declared you righteous. Has already said, I love him as I love my son. Because he is righteous as my son is righteous. What is the devil going to say to you? What accusation does he have? This is the blessedness promised to Abraham and promised to go to the ends of the earth. A blessedness to be received by faith. But I wonder if this is what you would count true blessedness. If this is what you would count the blessed life. If you were to think for a moment what prior to this morning you would have answered when somebody asked you, what is the greatest blessing you could imagine? What might your answer have been? A new job? Wealth, health, and long life? Maybe it's just basic comforts. Or a family. A spouse. A new home. Or the ability to provide your kids with every opportunity afforded to the other children. Or maybe you are the child And it's your ability to flourish on that traveling sports team in the eyes of your peers. I don't want you to get me wrong. It is true that oftentimes that, that these are blessings and the book of Proverbs testifies over and over again that when we live according to God's rule, God's law, God's word, it often does result in blessings much like this. But I don't want us to confuse that blessing with the blessing that Paul is talking about here. This is the blessing that, that cannot be changed by circumstances. Because Paul says back in verse 4 that these Galatians are actually suffering for their faith in this righteousness. Their faith in Christ. It is a blessedness that it surpasses the challenges of suffering. This was the blessedness, blessedness that David speaks of in Psalm 32 when he writes... Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Be glad, O oh, uh, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O oh righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Nothing could be of greater value. Nothing this world has to offer could compare to what is infinitely more than we could have ever asked or imagined or certainly ever deserved. That is why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up and sold all that he had and buys that field. The pleasures of this world will finally fail. Each one of them has an expiration date. They are the treasures for which which moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But this blessedness that Paul speaks of, this blessedness of being declared righteous and having fellowship with God eternally secured. A dwelling place with him set in the heavens a place being fashioned even at this moment by the Lord Jesus Christ for you is a blessedness that none that this world has to offer can compare to. We need to see the brevity of this life so that we might revel in the eternality of the blessings to come, the reward for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you see then how circumstances cannot alter or Destroy this joy. There is no question that circumstances affect grief, cause grief, create grief. But even in our grief, Paul later says to the church in Thessalonians, we grieve as those with hope. We have hope, not just in the goodness of our God, though we have that, but in the goodness of what is to come. Do not be deceived by the allure of this world and its temporal pleasures. And as as a church, we need to understand that this is our mission. Our mission is to take the promise of blessing to Abraham that was to be a blessing to the nations and see ourselves as part of that, which is the very fulfillment of the great commission that Jesus gave to the church to go. And make disciples of all nations. Extending this blessing of being justified to the ends of the earth. Having peace with God and delivery from bondage. This is how the blessing of Abraham reaches the nations and how we fulfill that commission. So then faith is the means of conversion. It's how we access it. And it is the means of Abraham's credit, but it's also the means of our redemption. Which is Paul's third defense and our third point this morning, Christ's redemption. Christ's redemption. Verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul turns in verse 10 to what is more a negative example. Abraham being a positive one, this being a negative example of why faith alone justifies. For as verse 10 says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. And to prove this, where better for Paul to turn than to the law itself? You'll see a number of quotations throughout those verses. The first one is from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Moses is re-giving the law and as he re-gives the law to, the, to Israel, he declares blessings on anyone who obeys it, who observes it, who follows it perfectly, but then curses for anyone who fails, who uphold the law. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, which is a quotation from Leviticus 18, that the law cannot be based on faith because it depended on If even in part, just a little bit, if it depended on our living according to the law, then we would be required to live according to all of it in its entirety, perfection. And so the law could not be based on faith. For if you failed to live up to it in part, you would be, as he said, under a curse, separated from God, unreconciled and unrighteous. So what is their hope? Well, this is why Paul then turns to quote the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. That is why, because the law curses, that is why the righteous are only those who live by faith. But how is it that faith can make us righteous? We've considered part of that already as righteousness gets accredited to us and to our account by faith in Christ. But then what good does that do if a curse still remains on us? If we're still in our sins and the curse of the law sits upon us, condemning us. Well, Paul says in verse 13 that Christ, what? Redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree Paul goes back again to Deuteronomy this time chapter 21 saying which says that a hanged man a man who is hanged is a symbol of being under God's curse so when the Lord Jesus Christ was hung on a tree it was a symbol part of it was a fulfillment of this symbol that God's curse upon us have been transferred to Him, the righteous one, now condemned because of our sin. And that is offered, he says, to anyone who would turn away from their sin and trust in Him alone by faith. For them, Paul says, Jesus paid the price. He ransomed them by His own blood. He not only credits them His righteousness, but He lifts the curse from them by His own. Act of ransoming. Think of a marriage. When you step up to the, let's say this is our, you know, our, our where, where the people get married, whatever that's called, stage, platform. You step up to it. You have the groom on one side and the bride on the other, both coming with their own experiences, both coming with their own backgrounds, both coming with various degrees of prosperity and various degrees of maybe not so much And at the moment that they get married, at the moment the minister says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, what changes? Visibly, very little. They now have a ring on their finger. Maybe they kissed. But legally and relationally, everything has changed. What was once only his is now hers. And what was once only hers is now his. Which means for some of us, we got the better end of the deal. <laughs> the, the, uh, but for that was corny. Anyway, continue. Uh, but for those who are in Christ. For those who have been wed to Christ. Your deal has been infinitely greater than you could have ever asked or imagined. For what you gave him was the curse of the law that he bore for you. But what he gives to you is his perfect righteousness, the right standing before the eternal throne of God. But then this serves as a sobering reminder for who does Paul say he does redeem in verse 14? He redeemed us, the same us who the end of the verse says receive the spirit, the guarantee, the down payment of this blessing by faith. So then if you lack genuine faith, if you lack this faith in Christ, Paul says this blessing is not for you. Rather, what you have is a continued standing upon your sin, living in your sin and under the curse of God. What he says to you this morning in his word is that the most important thing you could do today is to have that curse lifted. Have the righteousness of Christ credited to you by turning to him, turning from your sin and trusting in him alone by faith. But then those for those who have been redeemed. It's also sobering that we should take sin very seriously. Did you realize that your sin, your one single sin was enough justification for the death of Christ? For his very crucifixion. For the death of your savior. Don't fall into the deception. That your little white lie doesn't hurt anyone. Or that. That self justification that. This feels good and surely it's not. Not hurting anyone or doing anything wrong. Friend if that is where you're tempted to look. Let me just plead with you look to the cross. If you think your sin doesn't hurt anyone, look to the cross of Christ. There is nothing more egregious that your sin could have done than to crucify your Savior. The cursing being placed on the Son of God and taking the life of the one who loved you incomparably. But then if you have taken sin seriously, then I want you to close now with the encouragement that you can rest You can rest in the truth that you have been redeemed. That he has already redeemed you from the curse of sin. And that sin no longer has bearing on your position before God. You stand before him as one ransomed. Stand before him as one redeemed. Stand before him as one purchased and one declared righteous completely. As Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a promise to rest in. Or as Habakkuk 2 4 said, a promise to live by. For he says the righteous will live by faith. And so then, how we begin is important, but of greater concern. Is how we end. And for the Christian. They not only begin by faith. But faith is the very means by which they're carried to the finish line. By which they finish the race. And on that last day stand before the Lord righteous. So may we be marked as a people who live by faith. And allow nothing to pollute the purity of that gospel in which we believe. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give praise to you this morning, recognizing that it is by your grace that we are here and by your grace for any who are in Christ this morning. For each of us who know the Lord Jesus, it was the work of your Spirit that wooed us to him, the work of your Spirit that keeps us in him, and it will be the work of your Spirit that keeps us to the end. Help us not to turn our gaze elsewhere.